Amen. Good morning, Providence. I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Could you stand for the reading of the word? We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm just going to read briefly. I don't, uh, yeah, well, Ephesians chapter 1, second half of it. I've been trying to hide these from you guys, but I'm 43 now. This is vulnerability breeds connection, so I feel more connected with you guys. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We are in week two of a new series on Ephesians. Jay preached last week on the first half of Ephesians 1, and I'm taking the second half of Ephesians 1. You see all these people that are being dismissed? I dismiss you. <laughs> this is kids, youth, going to Kid City, new reality, our Spanish congregation as well. Uh, is dismissed at this time. Um, I'm going to take the second half of Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, and I just want to encourage all of you, all of us, Ephesians can seem intimidating, the book of Ephesians, to just do a Bible study in Ephesians, because it can seem, on one level, very deep, Paul uses really long sentences with a lot of strange words that we don't use a lot. And so you can approach Ephesians and be intimidated by it. And it can be intimidating to preach Ephesians. I don't have an MDiv. I don't know Greek. Uh, I took a couple of Greek classes when I was in Bible college, but I was in Bible college to be a youth pastor, let's be honest. I know more about Xbox and pizza than I do about the Greek, dead Greek language. I don't know Hebrew. Fortunately, there are experts. There are experts that know these things. When I stand up to preach out of Ephesians, it can be intimidating to me because I don't know a lot of things. I don't know a lot of things. And Jay and I were talking this morning. This can be an intimidating book for preachers and for those who are just wanting to study it, but it should not be. Paul did not intend this to be intimidating. Actually, the Ephesians at this point are relatively new believers. They still, some of them, still believe in magic. They still pronounce incantations over their enemies. They are worshiping as many as 50 different gods, depending on what their needs are. Now, they've, they've turned away from this. The Ephesian believers have turned away from this and are now worshiping the one true God, but this is still fresh, and they still face the temptation when they get in a jam to look for the magic to get them out of it, the magic power to get them out, to pray to the right deity to get them out. These are young believers that Paul is writing to. 
and he is wanting to communicate to them actually some very simple things. The Spirit of God behind Paul and through Paul is wanting to communicate some very simple things. And so I want to encourage you this morning that no matter where you're at in your Christian journey, whether you were just saved last week or you've been saved for most of your life, for decades, Ephesians is good for you. It is written for you. You don't need an advanced theological degree to get your mind around it and to understand it. And at the same time, somebody once said about the Bible as a whole, that it is an ocean that is sh shallow enough for a child to swim and play in and splash around in and deep enough for an elephant. Ephesians is like that. And if you've been a Christian and you've been studying the word for decades, Ephesians is also deep enough for you to go really deep. Jay kind of mentioned it last week, this this idea of election that shows up in Ephesians chapter 1. There are libraries of books written on just that one thing. And if you want to go deep, you can go deep in Ephesians. But you don't have to. You can understand what Paul is wanting to get across no matter where you're at theologically, no matter where you're at in your walk with Christ, no matter how recent of a believer, this is for you. And I want you to know this. And Paul wants you to know this. In fact, the heart of what Paul is getting at in this second half of chapter 1 is really, really simple. You don't have to know a lot of theological concepts. Paul says, my prayer for you is just one thing. I am praying for one thing for you, that you would know God. That's it. I am praying for this one thing. Now, later in Ephesians, he's going to say other things about that knowledge of God. As you know God, as you begin to know him and you increasingly know him more and more, he's just like any of your friends. You're going to, see, you're going to understand a lot more about him. In fact, in Ephesians 3, Paul is going to say, this, thing, this is what I'm praying for you now. I'm praying that you would understand the love of God for you. But here in Ephesians 1, this is, this is the one thing you need to come away with this morning. Paul's heart for you and, more importantly, God's heart for you, who is inspiring Ephesians, God's heart for you is to know him. He wants one thing for you this morning. He wants you to know him. Now, Paul is writing this, we just said, to a group of young believers who have, for most of their lives, worshipped a variety of different gods. None of those gods wanted that for them. None of the Greco-Roman gods wanted people to know them. They could care less about whether you knew them or not. They wanted the right sacrifices. They wanted you to lay your lives down for them. They wanted those things, but they didn't care if you knew them. Paul opens this section up, and he says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. No other God wants that for these people. None of these other idols wanted that for these people. And before we dismiss them as primitive because they believe in magic, we're going to get to this a little while later. We live in a different culture. We have progressed beyond magic, right? When was the last time you got in a jam and tried to remember the right spell to cast? We've, been, we've gone through the Enlightenment, right? We're so much more advanced than they are. 
We don't believe in magic spells and incantations and idols. Well, we do. We'll get to that in a minute. But let's not dismiss them. What Paul is saying here is there is one God, and this one God wants you to know him. And as you get to know him, there are three things that Paul brings out in this prayer for them that come out of an increasing knowledge of God. But in order for you to know him, he says, your eyes of your hearts, the eyes of your hearts need to be enlightened or opened. In other words, there is, a, there is an aspect to God where left to yourselves, you cannot know him. You can't know him. Left to yourself, your own native understanding will not allow you to know God. But if God enables you to know him, if God opens the eyes of your heart to know him, you can know him. And in fact, that's why you were created is to have the eyes of your heart opened and know the God who created you and then naturally worship him. So we're going to go through these three aspects just together, very simply in Ephesians 1. I don't have notes. We're going to walk through it together. This is meant to be understood together in a together context. And if you've been with us at all at Providence, you know together is really important to us. We've said it this morning. We put it on the wall. We love God together. We love our church family together. Together, We love our neighbor together. Everything I'm going to say to you this morning is meant to be taken and received in a together, communal context. In other words, biblically, yes, God wants you to know him at an individual level. But here's the problem for us as Americans. We have taken that idea and beneath the purview of our God of individualism, we have taken that to mean that I personally need to know God and I want to know God on my own. That's true. You do individually need to know God, but that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, my prayer for you as a group of believers is that together you would know God. And in fact, you would see this as the most important pursuit in your lives is that coming together around this one person, God, you would seek to know him better. So everything we're going to look at this morning is in that context. Most of scripture is in that context. You cannot make sense of the Christian faith outside of a together context. You can't do it. I mean, just one example. There's the verse that we all know that's on our wall out there. You are all one in Christ Jesus, right? How does that verse open up? How does that text open up? What's the context? What, is, what does it say going into that little statement? You are all one in Christ. There is no, there is no Jew or Gentile or Greek. Yep, no male nor female but you are one in Christ. Outside of a together context, I can't make sense of that. If I'm just in my dining room, sitting at my dining room table, six o'clock in the morning by myself with my Bible open and with my cup of coffee, I can read that verse and say, yeah, look around my living room and dining room. There's no Jews or Greeks here. That is true. There's no women here. Just me, just this one Danish guy that's right, I am one guy in Christ. I'm missing the point of that verse, right? 
But when you show up in this sort of a context, like this morning, where you're finding yourself worshiping in different languages, now you can start to make sense of it. There are no Salvadori, El Salvadorians in Christ. You are one, right? You're not from primarily El Salvador or Congo or Texas. You are one. You are one in Christ. We can make sense of that in this context. When we go into our community groups during the week and meet together and break bread together and just look at God together, we can make sense of that together. We won't make sense of the promise in Revelation that says there's coming a day where every tribe and tongue and nation is going to gather and worship as one, the God of the universe. We can't make sense of that by ourselves. We have no idea what that would look like. But when we enter into a context of believers from every nation, tribe, and tongue, we can start to get what Jay called a snapshot of the kingdom. So I just want you to hold on to that, even as you go out from here and decide, I hope that you will decide, to study Ephesians. Hold that together context tightly. This is meant to be understood and unpacked together. I am for personal Bible study. I actually just finished reading through First and Second Samuel 2, and nobody, nobody's telling us to do this, but we're all just doing this. It's just interesting to me. I'm in Kings now. I believe in personal Bible study. I believe in that. But more important, more important than your individual personal Bible study is your relationship to the family of God. Biblically speaking, more importantly, God wants you to know him, but God wants you to know him along with your brothers and sisters that are in his family all around the world. Okay, so this is Paul's prayer for you. This is actually the spirit of God's prayer for you. This is not just Paul saying this. This is the Holy Spirit of God saying, this is what I want for my family. I want them to know me. I want them to know me. Three aspects of knowing God that are here. First, and we mentioned this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. What, is that, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to have the eyes of my heart? My heart doesn't have eyes. I think a good picture of this and please don't be insulted. I'm not, this, this could sound condescending, and you'll understand why in a minute, but don't be insulted by it. Just take it. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's close. In the middle of the pandemic, December of 2020, we made the terrible decision to breed our golden retriever and have puppies. We were sitting around the house, big family, nothing else to do. Let's have some puppies. <laughs> it was a terrible mistake. It was a terrible mistake. Our, I mean, yeah, I don't need to go into details of why. When the puppies were born, we had nine little golden retriever puppies born on Christmas Day. Ten, one didn't make it. That's a whole other story. Nine puppies left on Christmas Day. None of them had their eyes open. If you know anything about biology, that's not a shock to you. It was surprising to some of our kids, mainly our high schooler. But none of them... None of them had their eyes open for the first, like, two weeks, right? Two weeks takes before they get their eyes open? I don't know. For the first amount of time, they didn't have sight. They couldn't see things. So they could not see their surroundings. We had built this little pen for them to stay in. It was unnecessary for those first few weeks because they're, they're, like, crawling on their stomachs, and they're blind. They can't see anything. And within a couple of weeks, their eyes start to open, and they get this vision of the world. And you know what the world looks like? plywood. 
and they're loving it. This is amazing. This world is amazing. You can see their little tails wagging. This is, that's what mom looks like. This world is huge. It's this little plywood box in our guest room. It's huge, and mom is huge. This is amazing. As they progress and they can start walking, and they can actually get out of that, and we can go put them outside in the front yard. We had a little pen set up in the front yard. Wow! This is huge! And we would leave, and we'd come home, and they'd be in the pen, and they'd all be standing up, wagging their tails, excited that we got home. And this is amazing! This world is huge from what they could see. Eventually, we went up to, we have a little place up in the mountains, and we drove up there, and it's on 40 acres, and it's surrounded by mountains, and we let them run around with no leashes or fences. They were just able to run around, and they were amazed by it, and they loved it. The world is huge, right? That's a non-condescending picture of our growth in grace and our growth in understanding and knowing who God is. This idea that Paul is saying, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, is a both-and concept here. It is, this is something that happened to you when you were saved. Your eyes were opened. When you became a Christian, your eyes were opened, and now you can see things about God and know things about God. And Paul's prayer is that your eyes would continue to be opened, and your view of the things that matter in life and who God is would continue to expand. And almost every day you would say, wow, God is huge. He's huge. And in these next few verses, Paul's going to unpack just a few elements of how big and how great God is. So first, as we're on this journey together to get to know God better, here are the three elements that Paul wants to highlight. First, that you may know, verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's it, right there, we're going to stop right there. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He's going back to the past. And like I said before, for some of you, that might be last week. For some of you, that might be 30 years ago. But he's going to the past when you were summoned into the family of God. This idea, this hope to which you have been called, that calling, has a legal connotation, like a legal summons. I just got a call this week from somebody, and it was from a police officer who was telling me that I broke the law. He said, you did not show up. You were summoned for jury duty, and you did not show up. Anybody been summoned for jury duty before? Yeah, you get a summons in the mail, and you're supposed to go. And I'm like... I don't even know what you're talking about. I, I didn't see the summons. Well, that's not an excuse. You can't say, well, I didn't know about it, so I broke the law. So he's walking through what my fines are going to be, and he's starting to sound less and less like a police officer and more and more like a guy who's trying to sound like a police officer. So I just started asking him questions. I was like, can, can I get just your badge number so I can write this? I'm just taking notes. Can I just jot this down? And he's like, yeah, we'll get to that in a minute, but first I need to walk through these things. I said, okay. Um, I tell you what, he said he was from Cherry Hills, from the Cherry Hills Sheriff's Office. And I was like, that doesn't sound right. I said, uh, okay, I, I, believe I've, I believe I didn't show up <laughs> to jury duty because I don't remember going to jury duty. Uh, but I'm going to hang up now, and I'm going to call Cherry Hills and have them verify that you work for them, and then we can continue. And he's like, well, just wait. Before you do that, we gotta get to, I just got to give you your citation number 
and I got to give you these things, and then you can do that. So he gave me the citation number, and I was like, wait a second. At any point in this conversation, are you going to ask me for my credit card number? <laughs> and he said, yeah, you have to pay this fine. I said, okay, you are not. I'm, I'm going to call the Cherry Hills. I don't even know if the Cherry Hills Sheriff's Office is a thing. I don't know. But I'm going to call him, and he hung up the phone. For a brief moment, I thought I had missed a summons. And you don't want to miss a summons, Right? If, you get jury, if you're assigned to jury duty, you're supposed to go. Now, as a pastor, I usually get dismissed because they're like, uh, you know, have you ever committed a crime? And I'm like, well, you know, who hasn't? We've all sinned. <laughs> We've all broken the law. And, yeah, I mean, I've probably committed more crimes than the guy who's on trial. And then the, can, you, can you view this objectively? No. I can't. I, my, understand, my ability to perceive reality is tainted by sin. I am subjective from the get-go. There is no way for me to view this objectively. In fact, I think we should probably have a conversation around forgiveness. And they're like, you can go home. So I have not actually had to go to a trial yet. But when you get the jury summons, when you're summoned, you're supposed to go. If the President of the United States summoned you and said, hey, I would like to invite you and your family to come spend a weekend in the White House, and we would just like to get to know you, and you would, depending, go. Right? If you're summoned, you go. If you're summoned legally, you go. I don't know if that guy was eventually going to have me meet him somewhere in a parking lot in Aurora or where we were going, but if you're summoned by your government, you go. And that's what this is. That's what Paul is saying here. The hope of this call. Now, what does he mean by that? How is this going to give me hope? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. This is looking back in the past. How is looking back in the past going to give me hope? Well, because you've already gone through the first half of Ephesians 1. And if you weren't here last week, you really should listen to it. It's online. You should listen to Jay's sermon on the first half of Ephesians 1 but you have been adopted. This hope is you've been brought into the family. This summons, you have already responded to the summons. And when you, re when you responded to the summons, you're in. You are in. So Paul is saying, I want you to know this God who summoned you. He summoned you. And if you want to go really deep, this summons is not something you can just ignore. You're going to respond to it. And you have. And this is the basis of your hope. The basis of your hope is you've been summoned by the king and you have been brought into his family. And don't you think that would be important for you to know and explore? Don't you think? It would be important. And Paul is saying, this is, this is what I want for you. I want you to know God. This is the God who gave you this hope when he summoned you into his family. So the hope in the past that you've been brought in it's a past and current reality. Secondly, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That you may know what is the hope to which he has summoned you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, inheritance came up last week, too. Because as a family member, you've been ado adopted into this family, the inheritance belongs to you. You get 
the eternal inheritance. In fact, you are an heir alongside Jesus Christ himself. You're a co-heir with Christ. So that inheritance is waiting for you and it's yours. When I was a kid and I went to church camp, uh, I was in junior high, a kid in my cabin, this was in Minnesota, uh, was from one of the Native American tribes in that area. And I don't remember which one it was, but he had been raised in a foster family. He was in a foster home. And he had recently been notified that once he turned 18, he would step into his share of the casino royalties that were due him as a member of this tribe. And it was in the millions of dollars. So here he is as a 14-year-old in a foster family that did not have a ton of money, dressed like the rest of us, didn't show up in a private jet, rode a bus like the rest of us. But he knows when I turn 18, I'm going to be a millionaire. Now, if that was you, and believe me, I've thought a lot about this. Because when I was in that cabin, I was like, man, when I go home, when I turn 18, I'm not going to be a millionaire. My dad's a youth pastor. If that was you, wouldn't you be looking forward to that inheritance? Wouldn't it occupy at least part of your thinking throughout the day? Like when you didn't get the shoes that you wanted because your foster family wasn't going to buy you $200 shoes, you couldn't get them, and you're thinking, man, when I'm 18, when I'm 18, I'm going to come into some money. When you couldn't afford to get a car, and you're like, when I'm 18, wouldn't that occupy a lot of your thinking? In Ephesians 1, that's the sort of inheritance that is ours. It's not a million dollars. It's better because a million dollars is not going to matter to you 100 years from now. It's not. A billion dollars will not matter to you 100 years from now, but your inheritance will, and your inheritance is waiting for you, and that inheritance is not the inheritance that Paul is talking about here. Paul is actually saying his glorious inheritance. Well, what does he mean? His glorious inheritance, God's glorious inheritance in the saints. What Paul is saying here is an aspect that I want you to know about God is you are his inheritance. We've already talked about the inheritance that's yours, but you, as a people, as a group, you are the inheritance of God. He's not borrowing anymore from the Greco-Roman court system and adoption. He's not. He's actually going all the way back to Genesis and Exodus, where God refers to his people as his inheritance. You are mine. You belong to me. I have bought you. And in fact, the rest of scripture is going to unpack that when Jesus went to the cross, he bought us with what? His blood. You have been bought with a price, scripture tells us. You are the inheritance of God. Now, if you can put yourselves back in the shoes of the Ephesians, where you've got 50 different gods, why is this good news to you? Why should this matter? Why should you want to know that you are the inheritance of God? Any thoughts? There's no trick questions here. This is just a communal Bible study. That's all it is. Why should this matter? In fact, even if you take yourselves out of Ephesus 2,000 years ago to now, why, why should this matter to you? Why should this occupy a thought of yours this coming week, buddy? It means you what? Have a meaning? Yes, you have a meaning. That's a great answer. This is why you're alive. It gives you meaning. Anything else? I mean, that's, that's, that's good enough. You, I'll, I'll let you off the hook. 
This gives you an identity, a meaning. You are the inheritance of God. How badly do you think God wants to receive his inheritance? Badly. (laughs) He wants to meet you with all of his heart. He cannot wait to meet you. In fact, when we get there, Jesus, over and over again in the Gospels, painted a picture of what that's going to be like. It is going to be the party to end all parties, a celebration, a feast. He is waiting for us, his family, his children, to come home. My son has been in Hawaii for the last year, and we have missed him because he used to take the trash out. (laughs) That's why his siblings have missed him. We have missed him, and when he was coming home, he got to come home for a couple of months this summer. I was so excited for him to get home, and I'm so thrilled that he's home. Several times throughout the day, I just think, it's so good having Jason back. I just love him, and I love that he's home. Multiply that by infinity, because I'm, Jesus would say, if you're you're an evil father, just imagine how much your father in heaven, who's perfect, can't wait for his kids to come home. You are the inheritance of the God of the universe, and he can't wait to welcome you home. And Paul says, I want you to know this together. I want you to talk to each other about this and remind each other about this because I don't know about you. Jay mentioned dysfunctional families this morning as we were getting ready for this service. We've all got dysfunctional families, right, to some degree or another. The the environment in which I'm raising my own kids, they would be happy to tell you, has some dysfunction to it, my own dysfunction. And I don't know what home was like for you growing up. I don't know if family reunions are a joy to you or something that fills your heart with anxiety and dread. I don't know if you have fond recollections of your parents. I don't know. And maybe you do. But even if you do, even if when you go home for Christmas, you spend the whole month ahead of time in eager anticipation, that anticipation pales in comparison to the eager anticipation of your heavenly father waiting to receive you, his inheritance. And Paul thinks we might want to know that. Third, and this is where Paul spends most of his time, third, And, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? In that short verse, Paul uses four different words to describe the power of God, and they all mean power. One commentator said, Paul is literally, like in the Greek, saying here, according to the power of the power of his power. What do you think Paul wants you to wrestle with here and and grow in your understanding of here? The power of God that he says toward us who believe. I hate these things. I hate these glasses. I just, I don't even, I'm not even used to them enough to be able to just smoothly, like some people do, just take them off and put them on. He wants you to know the power of God that is yours. The inheritance that he's talking about is his, and his power is yours. Now, do you think that might be important to the Ephesian believers surrounded by 50 gods who are powerless. I mean, they had incantations to these gods for rain. If I was in a dispute with you 
I would go find a spell and cast it on you and just hope that the right God would listen and condemn you. Do you think they had an interest in the power of God? Of course they did. And our secular society would say, yeah, because they didn't have science. But how about our culture today? Do we have an interest in power? Do we? Politicians? We may not believe that Harry Potter was a documentary. We might not believe that Hogwarts existed. We might be beyond that. But we believe in magic. <laughs> science can get us so far, but science isn't going to get you one minute past your death. Science has nothing to tell you about that. Nothing. In fact, for the m vast majority of your existence, science will be of no help to you because it has nothing to instruct you. <laughs> nothing. How about wealth? How about the magic of the stock market? Where for some reason, some days it's up, and other reasons it can plummet. Or cryptocurrency. That sounds like magic potion. Cryptocurrency sounds like something that would come out of the mouth of Harry Potter. What about this? People believe in this? When Americans get in a jam, where do they go? Secular, our culture, where do they go? If they get in a jam, they don't maybe cast a spell, but where are some places that they go for hope and power? Where do they look? Church, hopefully. Yes. Where else? Buddy, the kids are showing up. They're home. Okay, yep. Everything can fall apart, but as long as I got this home, this house, I'm okay. What else? I saw somebody over here. Some people do go to the magic side of things, to palm readers and fortune tellers. Yep, absolutely. Anything else? Self-help books. Volumes and volumes of them. Antoinette. They go to social media and see how many likes they're getting. Yes. Yes, that little heart dictates so much meaning for so many people. I have felt it. I'm not immune to that magic of getting liked on Facebook. How about we take it outside and stop pointing fingers at all of them? How about in the room? Where do you go when you're in a jam and you need some power and I'm not looking for God? Because hopefully most of you turn to God. But if you're like me, you don't always. You have lesser gods that you need some power from. Where do you go? Google. <laughs> yeah. Google. Therapy. Yep, and therapy is good, but therapy is not God. And if we see our therapist as our God, he or she is going to let us down. In time, given enough time, because they're as human as we are. Anybody else who hasn't gone yet? Cheetos. Hot Cheetos. <laughs> yes. For me, it's bacon, but I'm with you. Yes, food. Food. I, my world might be falling apart, falling apart, but this bacon, putting it back together. Who else? <laughs> Who else? Yeah, yeah, trying to please people. For me, when I'm anxious, I look to money to solve a lot of my problems, and it doesn't. It doesn't. Reason. Yes, your smarts and intellect and logic, yes. This is no different, folks, than the Ephesians. This is just our version of magic. 
That's all it is. And Paul says, providence, providence. The Spirit of God through Paul says, I want you to know the power of my power that is my power that is available to you. Your money doesn't have that kind of power. Your intellect doesn't have that kind of power. Your friend group doesn't have that kind of power. I have the power that spoke the universe into existence, and it is available to you, and I want you to know it. Man, we don't have an amen corner anymore. (laughs) Jay just gave us an amen corner last week, and it disappeared. The power that brought Jesus back from the dead is for you. Yes, yes. Nothing else in all of the world has that kind of power. Nothing does. But in closing, I think it's important for us to understand what this power looks like most of the time. Because there is a false theology around this power that would have you believe that this power is yours like a genie in a bottle. And so when you get into a bad situation, you can rub the, if you rub the genie bottle the right way, if you rub the lamp the right way, God will come out and do your bidding because he will give you his power and it's available to you. So if you need money, just pray the right prayer and have the right amount of faith and the money will come. If you need to get out of a jam, just pray the right prayer and you'll get out of the jam. What does that sound like? That is magic. That is an incantation. That is not the power of God that Paul is talking about here. The power of God is meant for you in the midst of trials and difficulties and hard circumstances to allow you to persevere through hardship with joy so that the watching world can say, how are you not panicking? Where is your hope? And then Peter would say, now you have an an opportunity to give them, tell them about the hope that lies within you. If you hope in your bank account and the market tanks and you lose your mind with worry and anxiety, you have nothing to offer your coworkers and neighbors who have just lost their retirement. You're as out of hope as they are. You have nothing to give them. But if the market tanks and you say, I have an inheritance in heaven waiting for me. In fact, I am an inheritance, the inheritance of a God who loves me. And together with my brothers and sisters, I'm headed there regardless of the market. I'm going to heaven to be with my father for all of eternity. That's hope. That's why I'm not losing my mind when hardship comes. That is what the power of God looks like. It doesn't look like you said the right incantation and got a billion dollars. It looks like what Tucker was sharing this morning. It looks like even in poverty, I am secure. As Buddy said, I have meaning. I, am, uh, I have an inheritance. I have a father who loves me. I have an identity, and I'm not shaken by what I have and don't have. I'm content. That's what the, how do I know? How do we know that that's what the power looks like? And with this, we'll close as quickly as we can. This is the power the power of the power of his power, verse 20, that he worked in Christ. When? When he raised him from the dead. Let's just stop there. If this was a genie, wouldn't that say when he saved his life? Shouldn't that say that? 
If this is the most powerful power in all of the power of the universe, shouldn't that say which he worked in the preservation of the life of his son? If we're left to our reason, wouldn't we assume that that's the only way that this could be good news for us? But it's not. He worked, this power was at work in the death of Christ. I'm part of two different basement groups. And at Providence, we call Bible studies basement groups because of a house diagram that we use to explain communal together, living in discipleship. Just as a, it's a Bible study. I'm part of two of those, one that meets on Tuesdays and one that meets on Thursdays. And in the one that meets on Thursdays, we're reading a book by Rollheiser and called Sacred Fire. Great book. A lot of crazy thoughts in there that I don't necessarily agree with. <laughs> but overall, great book. And in the last chapter that we just read, he made the point that when we think of the passion of Christ, we think of all the pain that he went through those final days of his life when he was beaten and scourged and crucified and mocked and spit on. And we think of pain when we hear the passion. But actually, it derives its root from the Latin word for passivity. And what we mean by the passion of the Christ is the window of time where we get to see the creator of the universe, the prime actor in all of the universe, take on passivity. For the first half of the synoptic gospels, and each one of them, for the first half, Jesus is active. He's performing miracles. He's walking on water. He's pronouncing freedom from demons and disease. He's healing. He's doing all of these things. He's teaching and confronting false teaching. He's active. And then the Garden of Gethsemane happens, and everything starts happening to him. Things are done to him. He's beaten. He's scourged. He's mocked. He's falsely accused. He's stripped of his clothes. He's hung up on a cross and tortured to death. Where's the power of God there? The reality, according to Scripture, the reality is most of the time, that is what the power of God looks like. Why? Because we don't serve a God made with hands that exists in a temple out here that we built together as a community. We don't serve a God that's limited by this world. In fact, this brief lifespan, which if we're fortunate, we might get 70 or 80 years out of, is not the important, most important part of who we are and where we're going. This lifespan is brief and is going to be over in a second. And because this world system hates this God, this world system will hate his children. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, don't be surprised when they persecute you. They persecuted me. And if you follow me, they're going to persecute you too. Most of the time, this powerful power of the powerful God is available to you in the midst of your darkest hour. It is there. It's there that he meets you. In fact, if you just turn a little bit to the left, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to say, there was a messenger of Satan sent to me, and I asked God three different times to have it removed from my life. And God said, no. No. Because? Why? My grace? Somebody finish. Is sufficient and my power is made perfect in weakness. This power is not the sort that comes out of a genie lamp. 
this power is perfected, is most prominently and glorious display, gloriously displayed as you embrace Jesus in the midst of your suffering. That's the only thing that looks different. If the power only got you out of a jam, you would look like everybody else out there. You just have a different genie. This is the power that is yours, even in the midst of hardship and difficulty. It empowers you to pray like Jesus did. Father, I want you to take this suffering away from me, but nevertheless, your will, not mine, be done. That is the power of God. That is yours. And many times in your life, it will bless you. God loves to bless his children and to meet our needs. He said he delights in that. But most of the time, when you go through hardship, it's not because you don't have enough faith or because you didn't say the right incantation. It is an opportunity for you to know the power of God. And these Ephesian believers are about to need that. Because as new emperors take the stage, they're going to suffer for their faith. This inheritance is going to be really hard to believe in when they see their families thrown to the lions. This hope of this calling is going to seem really flimsy when there's a centurion at the door saying, are you going to pay homage to Caesar? And in that moment, you have to decide, is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord? Because if I say that Jesus is Lord, I'm dead. And the power of God isn't going to prevent me from dying. It's actually going to usher me into his presence and raise me from the dead, which is the hope that Paul is talking about here. The power that he worked in Christ, in his death, and in his resurrection. He raised Christ from the dead. This is the power that on the other side of your suffering, the joy that is set before you outweighs the grief and the hardship. And that's not trivial or trite. It's true. It's true, and together we as a community need to be believing this and receiving this and encouraging one another with this. It's reality. It is the only objective reality that we know of. This is real. The last part of this prayer, Paul encourages us and says, and I'm praying this for you with great confidence, because the one who God raised from the dead, Jesus, God didn't just raise him from the dead. He raised him into an entirely new reality where he is seated above all of your false gods and all of the dominion of all of these spiritual rulers that you believe in as Ephesians and we believe in as Americans. When Paul says he seated him above all of these authorities, he's specifically talking about spiritual authorities and rulers. Because for Paul, as we go into Ephesians, you're going to see, he's going to say, our main problem here is not the Roman Empire and their oppression of us. Our problem are the principalities and powers behind the Roman Empire. Like we have brothers and sisters right now in Ukraine who know Ephesians and know that their biggest threat is not Putin. It is the powers behind Putin that control him like a puppet. Those are who we wrestle with. And they're not shaken as their homes collapse. They're not shaken because Jesus Christ, who died and rose by the power of God, has been seated over them, and all of those powers are under his feet. Even when it doesn't feel like it, all of the spiritual powers in heavenly places are under the feet of Christ himself. 
Amen. And it's not just them, though here, in this context, it is. In other places, Paul is going to say, it's all powers, period. All of the rulers of all of the earth, all of the things under the earth, all of the things above the earth. Jesus rules over all of them, and they have all been placed under his feet by the power of God, which is yours now in Christ. And Paul says, I want you, Providence, to know this God. This is the God who should be dominating our thinking tomorrow and Tuesday throughout this week. And together, we should be giving our lives to know this God. That's my prayer for you and for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your power. Thank you for the hope. Thank you that you summoned us into your family. God, I pray that you would continue opening our eyes as we go through Ephesians, just wider and wider so that we get a greater and greater glimpse of who you are. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.